Hello and welcome to The Recommended Dose, the podcast promoting a more questioning approach to healthcare, produced by Cochrane Australia. I'm Ray Moynihan. While often our guests have a bit of grey hair, like I do, today our conversation is with someone much closer to the start of their working life, the brilliant young clinician scientist, Dr Arnav Agarwal. Arnav only recently graduated as a doctor from the University of Toronto in Canada, but he's already published over 100 peer-reviewed papers. And as you'll hear, he somehow finds time to write poems about the dehumanising impacts of the inhuman hours expected of trainee doctors. His interests range from improving healthcare for refugees to winding back the harm of too much medicine, from understanding the social determinants of health to using the best evidence at the bedside. All driven by a passion for science and for people. My mom is a social worker and uh, someone who's a great inspiration to me. She has previously worked with Mother Teresa's homes and back in India when she was working there. And moving to Canada, I saw uh, that she carried that same passion for talking to people, understanding their stories and finding a way to help people by understanding their stories and, and understanding their needs better. And I found that same passion and curiosity with science is something that I carried forward with wanting to better understand people. From high school, Arnav went on to an undergraduate health sciences degree at McMaster University, home to a previous guest on the recommended dose and Arnav's mentor, Gordon Guyatt, who helped inspire evidence-based medicine and a more questioning approach in healthcare and in learning. As opposed to the old didactic style, this is what you must know. When I started undergrad um, as, as a you know, young high school graduate, I expected a very didactic curriculum, one that was very focused on kind of a standard didactic curriculum. But what I found at McMaster instead was that there was a focus on learning how to ask questions. And rather than just learning information, learning how to take an approach to actually dissecting out um, a certain case or actually you know, constructing and deconstructing a question. And those are skills that we never really were exposed to in high school or in our educational pathway so far that McMaster really empowered me with. Um, McMaster officially calls that problem-based learning. I imagine that doing that medical degree is quite challenging. Did all of your fellow medical students make it through or was there something of an attrition rate there? Um, so, yes, certainly medical school was very rigorous. It involves um, dedicating yourself to, you know, spending every day or at least portions of every day learning on your own and then committing to being a part of a learning environment with others, whether it's in a classroom setting or it's on the wards. There's certainly a massive time commitment and a massive energy commitment I'm proud to say that I've graduated University of Toronto's medical program successfully and alongside the majority of my colleagues who've certainly put in an immense amount of hard work and dedication uh, throughout their training. And while it's rigorous, I think going through medical training also allows you to appreciate that it's more than just medical knowledge that you need to gain. And so while the, the medical knowledge piece is what most of us fear as we start medical school, I think that's really where a lot of the tensions lie. We say, how can we tackle medical school? How are we going to be able to learn these mass amounts of knowledge that people need to know to be a good doctor? But as you go through medical school, you realize that it's not just the content that 
you need to actually master, you actually start becoming interested in understanding people, understanding socioeconomic circumstances, understanding the systems that are at play that impact patients' health beyond the knowledge base. We often hear how hard it is for junior doctors in training. I mean, people know, listeners will know about the ridiculous amount of hours that people have to put in. But just give us a sense of what kind of hours that you've been putting in in the last year or so and are still putting in. Just give us a sense of that. So the hours are absolutely um, something that is a growing concern from a medical education perspective. In my first year of training so far, we've had weeks um, where I've had 26-hour overnight shifts um, twice or three times in a seven-day period and sometimes weeks that can clock up to over 100 hours in a given week and certainly that does take a toll on us as trainees and on a bigger topic I think it it takes a toll on the care we can provide to patients and, and our abilities to perform as junior doctors as well and so certainly as a junior trainee, there is a big time investment, and that's something that I think is a um, is a major struggle for many many junior trainees in my position. If you were sick or your mum was sick, would you want her to be treated by a doctor who just worked a, a twenty five hour shift? I, I think all the listeners on the show. Are- me and you both all know the answer to that question. Certainly, it isn't optimal. No one would want a doctor who's or, or anyone who's worked a 26-hour shift uh, to be the next one in line to attend to their care, whether it's medicine or it's engineering or it's anything. Like one of the other guests we've had on this program, Johnny Anidis, you write poetry as well as being a doctor. I'm sure there's many health professionals that write poetry, but but you're two of them. You're going to read a poem uh, a bit later called 26-Hour Days. Do you want to just talk briefly about that poem and, and just how you cope with the pressure, the stress of working like that? Yes, absolutely. So I'm a big fan of Johnny Anidis' poetry. I'm honoured that you'd mention both our work in the same sentence. Um, my poetry Poetry has been somewhat of a recent um, interest of mine and a way of a way for me to reflect on experiences as I've had them on the ward. I find that you know we go through so much in a given 24-hour period that as we go through days, weeks, and months, we don't really have a forum where we take an opportunity to actually reflect on experiences and actually dissect what those experiences mean to us. And I think that kind of reflection is important for two reasons. I think, number one, it's important for us to internalize experiences and understand what they mean to us. But on a, on a bigger scale, I think it's important to actually put ourselves in the position of those we care for and those we work alongside to better actually understand what our colleagues go through and our patients' experience must be like on the other side of the table. I remember quite a few years back now when I was working at a uh, at a sort of high-profile TV current affairs program in Australia called Four Corners, we would put in the occasional 100-hour week. And I, and I remember my stepmother at the time saying, when you're working that hard, you forget who you are. <laughs> And uh, it struck me as being very, a very profound insight. Yes, I can complete that insight. Certainly resonates with me. If you ask my mom how often I respond to her text messages or her calls during those weeks where we clock in over 100 hours, she would um, certainly put in a frown and uh, not be very happy. I, I certainly think that when we tax ourselves beyond our bounds, something has to give, whether it's our personal lives or our sense of resilience over a period of time or the patient care we provide, or just our, our sense of sensitivity to patient needs and the, and the needs of others in our lives. Something has to give somewhere. And 
I think my goal for myself over the course of this year and something that I'd implore, you know, any students, any young trainees and any doctors as they go through their careers to do is to actually reflect on the kind of person you are. Um, when I wrote 26 Hour Days, I think one of the questions I asked myself is, you know, have I become a bad person? Because I, the same sense of enthusiasm that I brought in on July 1st when I started my intern year wasn't necessarily the same sense of enthusiasm that I had at 4 a.m. Uh, when I got a new page uh, in October or November. And I think more so than just recognizing that that change happens, I think it's important to ask why. And I think it's important to reflect on the kind of person that we become and the kind of decisions we make and how we approach decisions as a result of these enormous responsibilities and burdens that are put on us. And so your experience certainly resonates with me and, um, and would certainly resonate with my mom as well. You were hinting earlier about your twin loves, if you will, of the, of the sort of science here, the biology, the science, the evidence, but also the engagement with people. That was clearly, that is clearly one of the things that really attracts you to your work as a doctor, as a health professional, that interaction with people. Can you tell us how you, how you integrate those two different sides, if you will, if they are different sides of, of your practice, using the evidence, but also dealing with the person in front of you? Yes, you know, they are certainly two different sides of medicine in terms of actually incorporating evidence and understanding the people behind a patient's story. But I think medicine is such a gift in that sense for all trainees and all doctors. It gives us a chance to actually understand um, patient stories on a regular basis in our regular jobs. Um, on any given day, if I got to meet 10 patients, um, you know, some people can see this as here are clinical presentations for condition X and condition Y and involve X workup and Y workup. But if you just take a chance to pull up a chair next to a patient and ask them, where are you from? And what are two things that matter to you? It's intriguing what patients tell you about themselves. And actually, it's intriguing that many of those things actually have significant relevance to their care. So while while patient stories and understanding the patient beyond, or understanding the person rather beyond the patient, um, sounds like it's a disparate act compared to understanding evidence and incorporating evidence and making evidence-informed decisions, they actually do go hand in hand because understanding the person behind the patient actually tells you what matters to them. It, it immediately tells you where their values and preferences lie. It immediately tells you what they think about their care, what kind of treatment decisions or you know investigational decisions they would have liked in their care and helps you guide their management. Um, because at the end of the day, we all chose medicine to try and do this for patients and to try and help patients in receiving the care that they wanted. And I think based on that mantra, I think a key part of that is actually understanding where the patient story is. And so while I would say, yes, it sounds like it's a dichotomy, I would say evidence and patient stories are certainly two sides of the same coin. And you need to flip to both sides of the coin to truly practice good medicine. You, you're not just a practicing doctor, you're also a, a budding researcher, Arnev. I, I'm amazed to know that you've published already over 100 peer-reviewed papers, uh, many with other colleagues, of course. Uh, it's an extraordinary achievement already. Um, and I think you've said you have a real interest in pursuing the path of a clinician scientist. So what's inspired that combination? As if you haven't got enough to do already as a young trainee doctor, but what, what's inspired this, this idea of being a clinician scientist? 
Yeah, thank you for the question, Ray. Yes, certainly. I've been incredibly fortunate to have some incredible opportunities over the last 10 years. When I was at McMaster, I met Gordon Guyatt, and he really started off um, an interest in terms of being more than just a scientist or a doctor when I was still figuring that out. He, he introduced the concept of being a questioner and actually asking important questions and developing an approach to answering them. And I think that's something that's really stuck with me, the this, this sense of curiosity um, that goes beyond just providing patient care, but actually wanting to inform evidence is something that has driven me to know that I want to be a clinician scientist down the path. I know that uh, you you have many interests, but I think I'm right in saying that one of your interests uh, at the moment, at least, is trying to understand this problem of overdiagnosis, of too many diagnoses being handed out and too much medicine more generally. Where did that interest come from? My interest in overdiagnosis and overtreatment um, emerged um, as I went through my medical training and and as I saw that a lot of the focus in our medical education system seems to be on understanding what more we should do. So how do we come, come up with the most complete um, workup for a certain presentation? Or how do we come up for the most comprehensive treatment for a certain condition so we leave no, um, you know, no stone unturned? But I think there's less of a focus on actually asking the question, is what we're doing needed? Is there a reason for much of what we're doing? And as I've moved through my clinical training, I've, I've forced myself to ask those important questions because I think they certainly are important, not only on an individual level, but on a system level. You know, why do we, why do we order the tests that we order on a routine basis? Is there a reason for them? Are there quality improvement initiatives in place to actually address and actually address why we do what we do and to actually rationalize and, and make us do less if there isn't a reason for, you know, the treatments and investigations that we pursue. How does that interest in the problem affect the actual care you give to people? Do you think it changes the way you work as a doctor? Certainly, I think having an understanding of the concepts of overdiagnosis and overtreatment and an acute awareness that these two phenomena exist in our medical system has changed the way that I've approached patient care. Earlier, I think our approach to medicine is that we, you know, we, we cover all our bases, as I mentioned, but as I move forward, I think it's helped me be more stewardly in terms of how I've approached every patient presentation. It's helped me to ask the question why. It's helped me to push my colleagues to ask the question why. And I think that's helped me to be a better doctor. It's helped me to make more evidence-informed decisions and more decisions that I can actually have a stronger basis for. At the end of the day, I think, you know, we often think of an investigation as just a test we send off. But when you really reflect on what you're doing, you're sending off a test that can have any number of results, um, can lead to any number of possible diagnoses, and can lead to any number of downstream consequences in terms of treatments. And so no no action is really benign um, in the healthcare system. And I think asking the question why before we do something rather than after we get a result is an important thing to do and something that I've worked on as a, as a uh, doctor in training as I've moved forward through my training. One of the pieces of writing that you've done, Arnav, is called Learning to Let Go. And in that, you address a patient near the end of her very full life. And you say, perhaps what was most challenging was not the fact that you were so unwell, but the sense that we were somehow complicit in your suffering. C can you share a little more about, about that story and what you meant by that? 
Yes, certainly. So I, we wrote a piece for a forum called Healthy Debate, and um, it was called Learning to Let Go. It was written by myself and two of my colleagues, and it was focused on a story of an elderly woman who was accompanied by her family in hospital and who came in with terrible heart failure um, and a fluid imbalance in her body. Her kidneys were injured as a result of the same. And as we give her one treatment after another, instead of getting better, she got worse and she had a worried family around her. She had a worried very involved healthcare team around her and as she got sicker and sicker we kept doing more and more and I distinctly remember this story because it was a story that uh, took place in my first year my first my first month I should say of my intern year this year um, but it's a story that's replicated a number of times throughout my training even this year um, because we often do more when we are when we're not seeing the results we want to see and that's that's not a phenomenon that's just isolated to medicine, but it's certainly one um, that is uh, quite pervasive in medicine, that when we aren't getting the results we want, we continue to do more and more and more. And so with this patient, we had, as we didn't get the results we want, we poked her for more blood, we did more investigations, we gave her more diuretics, we gave her more treatment. And as we did more and more, she got sicker and sicker. And I think as a medical team, what we struggle with the most is realizing at some point, there isn't much more we can do. I think we really struggle in, in the medical profession with acknowledging sometimes that we do have limitations, that not every problem has a treatment and at some point certain treatments have more harm than good. And I think that story back in July in my first month of, of my internship year this year um, really captured that as we did more and more um, we only caused more and more harm until the point when we met with the family and said, you know, I think we're doing more harm than good and I wonder if at this point we need to actually put the put the patient first. You know, what would she have wanted? Would she have wanted us to do this? And I think I, I think that story for me, as I reflect back, captures those two things. Number one, that we need to always think about what the patient would have wanted in any given circumstance. And we always say that, you know, this is patient-centered care. But true patient-centered care comes by thinking about, you know, is there really a goal that that is in line with the patient's values and preferences that we're working towards when we're treating more aggressively and working someone up for um, for, for a certain condition more aggressively. Um, and then number two, you know, do we actually understand our limitations? You know, can we actually draw a line and say, you know, beyond this line, there isn't actually more we can do. Can we learn to let go? And so those are really the two kind of resonating pieces of that um, of that story. And it's something that I've seen as a recurring theme as I've gone through my training this year. I have to say, I have tears in my eyes listening to your story, Arnav, and I, I suspect a lot of listeners to these stories will resonate with them. We just have to think of our elderly relatives lying in hospital beds and and I and I reflect back on on my mother um, towards the end of her life and just uh, just that image of, of of the system wanting to constantly take blood thanks for the kind words Ray you know that that story um, is unique for one other aspect and that's actually the family aspect um, because that lady as, as she was as she was passing she ha she was surrounded by family and as we did more and more you know there were certain family members that wanted us to keep going and to do to treat her more and more aggressively as if we could bring her back you know bring her back to life but then there were others that actually said you know no please don't come back and please actually stop taking blood every day please stop checking her blood pressure four times a day because I think you're causing her more discomfort and I don't think you're actually managing to do anything that's actually helping her. 
another of the guests on this podcast, uh, The Recommended Dose, uh, Iona Heath, who you may know, whose work you may know, she's talked about, obviously talked a lot about the, the medicalization of ordinary life, the medicalization of suffering, but she's also talked about what, what seems to be a, almost like a cultural incapacity to face up to the reality of death and dying. Um, is that sort of part of what you're talking about here? Yes, certainly. I mean, I, I think there certainly is a cultural aspect in terms of our struggle with accepting death and dying. But I think as a as a community, when we come to the medic, when we come to um, hospitals or we come to the medical system, I think we as a as the public are always expecting a cure, and we're always expecting um, that even if someone is on death's door, that we can turn them around. And I think that's part of where accepting that sometimes there isn't more that can be done and accepting where priority should be in terms of treatment versus actually making someone comfortable towards the end of end of their lives um, is a constant challenge for both healthcare providers and for family. Clearly, you must be seeing suffering and, and possibly even death on a daily basis. And given how engaged you, you are with people, that you must be having some emotional interaction there as well to make those interactions meaningful. But how on earth do you then switch off at the end of the day? How do you leave that behind and, and find time for yourself uh, apart from that world? I think it's a very important question, actually. Um, thank you, Ray, for that. I think when I started my intern year, and especially when I started as a, as a medical student, as a clerk, and I went to the wards, I never actually anticipated this part of the challenge. I certainly anticipated, you know, you needed to take this massive amount of knowledge and bring it to the ward. There would be challenges in terms of navigating the ward. But I didn't actually factor in that in developing strong these deep patient relationships also comes the added challenge of actually, you know, how do you remove yourself from the the, the massive kind of load that that the emotional load that comes with, um, you know, dealing with death and dying. And as I went through the first few months, in fact, I noticed something interesting. I found that as most as several of my colleagues would also agree with, the only real way to leave something at work was almost to harden a little bit. You almost form less deep relationships with patients and, and you kind of separate yourself from the work environment. You almost disassociate yourself a little bit um, in the care that you're providing um, when you're trying to kind of process so much and, and still trying to stay afloat and come back the next day with the same sense of energy and the same sense of compassion. Um, and I actually, because I was being reflective and because I was thinking about um how I was changing as a person as I went through these experiences, I noticed that I was not only hardening in, in a clinical environment, but I was also somewhat hardening in a personal environment because at the end of the day, I am one person um, and we as trainees are one complete person. And so I found that, you know, if, if it was a full day and I had to make a decision and the decision was taking longer than I would have wanted it to, maybe I was a little more impatient with that decision or maybe I needed that decision to happen a little faster. Or if something, if I had four different things lined up, maybe I would um, be less concerned about letting the last thing go. Um, and I caught myself doing that and I, it was a change I didn't like. Um, it was a change I struggled with because I put so much value on actually developing the strong patient relationships, on actually, you know, maintaining um, such strong relationships in my personal life, that that change really wasn't one that fit with my own values. Um, and so through reflection and through actually thinking about um, how I approach these situations, I found that instead of actually 
dissociating with these with with these patients and with with patient relationships rather i needed to take an approach that actually just meant understanding them and having these honest conversations because at some level i think if you're if you're leaving the room with a burden there's there's a conversation that hasn't happened you know there there's a difference between someone being upset um but someone not knowing or someone not fully understanding and i think that second one is what really leaves a provider or a doctor in training with a sense of discomfort so i think having those honest conversations you know pulling up a chair by the bedside discussing with family what it means to them to see someone in their life who's so loved and so meaningful to them sick um and explaining to them from a medical perspective exactly where we are having an honest conversation has helped me deal with that stress has helped me um take a different approach that allows me to continue to develop those deep relationships and in fact has only helped me do that more so clearly your work at the bedside is deepening your understanding of of the best kind of care you can give but is is your narrative writing is the poetry and the other writing that you're doing is there a sense in which that's also deepening your understanding and and improving your work as a doctor yes certainly i think my narrative writing has helped me actually take a step back from the busy world of the ward and actually think about the experiences that i'm having on a day-to-day basis it's easy to go through a 24-hour day with um a lot of different experiences and then to start the next 24-hour day without actually dissecting what those experiences meant but there's something to be learned in everything that a patient says and something to be learned in everything that colleagues have to say um for better or for worse and i think if we don't take a step back to actually think about those things it's difficult to become a truly better doctor we're just going to sort of move towards the end of this interview Arnav and I just want to ask I guess a few more personal questions about your life. One of the things that struck me re- reading about what you do is that not only are you working as a doctor, you're researching, you're writing, you also somehow have found time for voluntary work. What sort of voluntary work is that and and how on earth do you fit it in? Thanks for the question, Ray. I, the voluntary work that I've been involved with has evolved over the course of a number of years now. When I was in high school, inspired by the goal of wanting to better understand people, I got involved with a number of organizations on a community level at the time, and those experiences really showed me that some of my most memorable experiences, some of the most uh, meaningful experiences that I had during my high school years um, before I started university, um, were the ones that I actually developed deep relationships. relationships with people in a voluntary setting I actually understood their struggles and their lives and actually developed a, a personal relationship with them um by you know either providing care whether it's in a medical setting or being involved in facilitating sports and games in a recreational setting or providing children with autism a companion for the day um again in in a caregiving setting and so these different settings really exposed me to the value um that volunteering and community service had in terms of building relationships. I carried that same interest and passion forward as I moved into my undergrad training at McMaster University and got involved with a series of clubs both involving leadership opportunities to actually impact you know student life and and communities um that we were that, that surrounded McMaster in the Hamilton um area but also to better understand people on a ground level so community agencies that actually went out into the community and served the homeless so worked you know with children with hearing disabilities or 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 learning disabilities and so actually developing relationships with these people not only told me about 
their stories, what mattered to them, but developed an, a sensitivity to actually understanding them and wanting to continue to be engaged with their stories as I moved into medicine. As I moved into medicine now, I think the volunteer work I'm doing looks quite different. It's it's become, a, the goal has become to not only understand um, patients as patients, but to understand the communities they come from, to understand the families that they come from, to understand the values that they bring as they interact and engage with the medical system. And I think a lot of that is, you know, evolved into understanding inner city health, understanding health policies and understanding how health policies, you know, may marginalize certain populations or widen the inequality gap between certain groups of people. And then on that same line to understand how we need to advocate for those groups of people that we care for on a day-to-day basis um, so that we aren't just actually managing their care in a hospital setting, so that we are engaging in their care on a much wider scale and actually impacting the determinants that often bring them into hospital or that often, often, you know, bring them back into hospital once we've sent them home um, and don't allow them to stay healthy in the communities. And so better understanding those pieces now has become my goal and better impacting those pieces, working with community advocacy groups that, um, you know, focus on social determinants of health and medical and health advocacy um, has been my new focus. You're listening to Dr Arnav Agarwal, an internal medicine resident at the University of Toronto in Canada, whose desire to be an agent of change has been nurtured in a family network of much love. My mother, who's a social worker, has been an absolute inspiration to me. She, Her work um, should be a nine-to-four job, but it tends to be more of a 24-hour job. She comes home and she's a social worker at home. She is my listening ear for everything. She has been there um, through every up and down. And she's really been, as I said, the backbone of my journey throughout, um, throughout my entire journey. And I'm incredibly thankful for that. My father, who is an internist himself, he's a doctor as well, um, and um, is incredibly passionate about what he does, is incredibly passionate about scientific inquiry. Um, he's been a guiding force in that sense. He showed me that it's important to stay committed to work. It's important to be hardworking and earnest and to um, and to never forget the value of hard work. And I've, I've carried that forward with me um, as I've gone through my training. And my sister, who, you know, um, is a blessing as well, she's been supportive throughout my journey. She has set an example. She's five years ahead of me. And she set a constant constant example in terms of not only from a career perspective how to be, but also the values to embody as a person. So those three three individuals have had a massive impact on my life. I'm also incredibly grateful to the other supports. I've had incredible friends. I have an incredible girlfriend who has been, you know, has been there for me through everything and is um, constantly understanding of the fact that a day only has 24 hours, but Arnav has a number of interests as well that he wants to explore beyond uh, beyond the medicine world. And I think it takes an understanding family. I think it takes an understanding partner to let you explore those visions and to let you explore those interests of yours. Um, and so I've been incredibly fortunate to have all those. The last person I'd mention is Gordon because Gordon Gayat has been you know a guiding force now for 10 years and I know this question is, is about family but I think without having a good mentor like Gordon an incredible mentor like Gordon it's it's really difficult to see myself where I am today and to see my interests where they are today. Dr. Arne Vagawal, it's been an absolute privilege and a pleasure to talk to you thank you so much. Thank you very much Ray great to be on the show. 
You've been listening to The Recommended Dose, produced by Cochrane Australia and co-published by the BMJ. Big thanks to producer Shauna Hurley, to editor Jan Mutz and to Julio Aguela at the University of Toronto. I'm Ray Moynihan. And to take us out, Arnav will read his poem, 26 Hour Days. 26 hour days, pacing the hospital wards. Day turn night turns day. If it weren't for a momentary glance at the clock, I wouldn't know otherwise. I scribbled the letters AKI across the lined A4 sheets in my charts. My last drink was 12 hours ago. By some stroke of irony, it ceases to even matter anymore. The regular family banter and friendly exchange lights up on my phone screen, unanticipated, unwanted. I swipe it away quickly, without a second glance, without allowing myself more than transient thought. I have no space for this, for me. I dreamt about this all my life, stethoscope around my neck, a physician's ID badge hanging against my chest, caring for patients. Was I not living the dream? I look around me to find others, my colleagues, my juniors, toiling through their EMRs and paper charts. I wonder if they ever glance back and wonder the same. Am I alone and struggling through this? Can they hear me? They all seem to fit in the jigsaw of the hospital, their confident voices drowning me out as I search for mine. Poster child for imposter syndrome. I wonder if I'm the wrong piece for this puzzle. I continue my rounds, patient by patient, room by room, listening closely to the crackle of drowning lungs, convincing myself I appreciate the weak double waveform of a neck vein impulse, poking a tender belly and digging into the intimacies of a relative stranger's bowel patterns. Along the way, I console an anxious family member, hold the hand of a sick patient left in solitude, explore the delicate prognosis of an end-stage cancer patient. M. Siggy caps my way into the deepest corners of a struggling patient's journey. Is your mood okay? Are you sleeping okay? Are you still interested in your hobbies? Are you feeling guilty? I look around the room for a moment, catch my reflection in the window. I can't help but wonder, what would my answers be? I stop myself short of answering. I feel guilty for wondering. 26 hour days, pacing the hospital wards. Day turn night turns day. And if it weren't just for a moment's reflection or an occasional external unwanted reminder, I'd probably forget about me.